I won't tell you what I do. No. It'll be even worse. Look, <laughs> girl, what's the saying? It's like when you turn on the water, you participate in capitalism. Yeah. Um. So this movie, like, it, I just like I just want to imagine that you're like you're like a defense attorney for Putin. Like that's what I <laughs> and she's like, look, look, look. We all participate in capitalism. Don't worry yeah, about it. Look, guys, look. I inject oil into endangered species. <laughs> it's not for research. We just, they pay me to do it. Look, I shrug I'm it a off. corporate lawyer throwing indigenous people off their land so we can build pipelines. I mean, no. it's cool. It's, it's funny cool. you say that. I, so I, I'm, uh, I don't do that. I will say I'm in a 12 step program and my sponsor is actually a, a corporate lawyer who like defends companies against like class action suits and stuff. And every so often I'm just like, how do you, how do you do that? Like, how do you do it? <laughs> And he's like, oh, time for another meeting. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I make a lot of money. Good night. They pay him a lot of money. Yeah, they, do. they really do. <laughs> oh, it is hard work being this good. Oh, oh it hurts. It's not about black. I don't mean to brag, but I'm the greatest. That's because you never saw me. It's not about white. Honey, I'm home. How much money did you make today? I miss you too. I'm sorry, honey. It's about green. I want to find out how good you are, chump. Come on, nigga! I'm your white shadow. I have a business proposal for you, as if you don't mind hustling. What kind of hustle? $500, baby, and you can pick my teammate. Give him the chump. You mean play basketball? Hey, pretty man, I got something for you. Shut your anorexic, malnutrition, tapeworm having, overdose, Dick Gregory, Bahamian diet drinking ass up. Give me my money. I see you hustle. Hey, I never use no goofy white mother. Hey, who you calling goofy white mother? You, you. Yeah, yeah. 500 divided by two. I only have four words for you. White men can jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, welcome to 30 Years Later. Uh, I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. This is your co-host, Chris Chafin. Hi, Chris, say hi. You say hi, Chris. Yes, thank you, Ricky. Thank you, as You're always, welcome. for that smooth and respectful introduction. It's respectful. It's never smooth. But maybe the fact that I intentionally don't make it smooth like connotes some form of disrespect for you. If that's the I, case. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I apologize, but you should grow a set and get over it. Uh, we're very lucky today to be joined by uh, another uh, podcast that I specifically invited on because uh, as we say at the end of the show all the time, you know, it's called 30 Years Later. We came up with the idea and then about half, like, you know, five episodes in, we realized Every episode we're going to be doing for 10 years, if we happen to do this podcast filling, will be taking place in the 90s. So we have invited uh, Hit Factory Podcast on, uh, which is a show that uh, covers movies and cultural events from the 90s, but mostly movies, right, guys? And it's uh, Aaron uh, Casillas and Carly Gomes. Thanks so much for being here, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. We're very stoked to be here. Um, and it's a it's it's it. it it's a. I mean, everything that I've listened to is '90s movies. Correct. We are first and foremost a uh, '90s film podcast. Yeah, we we branch yes. off every so often. Um, with within that framework, we talk a lot about 
the the pop culture of the era, the politics of the era too, um, and, and you know take a couple of cues from you know left politics and talk about like what was happening around uh, you know the sort of homogenization of this neoliberal project under Clinton, blah blah blah. Um, oh, and it'll be very fun for this movie. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Um, and you know, every so often we will step out of that wheelhouse and do something that is about the culture or connected to. Uh, recently, we did uh, a really great episode talking about The Matrix Resurrections, um, just because of its proximity to uh, a classic staple of, of the 90s. Um, and also just talked about the new Chuck Klosterman book that uh, is detailing the 90s. Um, I would recommend you listen to the show rather than read the book, but that is up to you and at your discretion. <laughs> <laughs> Would you also recommend that for the Matrix Resurrections as well? Because I got to be honest with the listeners and oh. with the people that I'm talking to, couldn't get through it. I fell asleep and I did not feel like I had to finish it. Oh boy! I tried three. I tried three times. <laughs> okay. I tried three times. I will. I and will. I, I'll give it up right now. I'll give up the ghost and just say we actually really adored the movie. I think we watched That's it like beautiful. three times in one weekend. <laughs> can I be, can I be, can, and, and I'm just, I'm just going to say like my displeasure in it or my inability to get through it is not really like an opinion about the movie because I admire those who saw great things in it and understood it on a level that I didn't in the same way that Chris and I have this thing with Star Trek and I don't use that example because it's science fiction. It's just the first thing that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Chris has an appreciation and a love for Star Trek on levels that I just can't hit, where I can't hit that with any of the Matrix sequels. Just I love clear, the first is, one. There is but... like no level that Ricky enjoys Star Trek on. Just to be like, it's not like he's like, it's not like he enjoys it like a regular person and I'm an, a lunatic. It's literally if I talk to him about it for more than one sentence, I can tell that he's checking his email. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's like, well, yes, yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Currently checking the email. Um, so today we're talking uh, about a movie that I love and I was very excited to be able to talk about in the show. Very excited to have to have you guys on for it too. It is uh, 1992's, March 27th, 1992's White Men Can't Jump, written and directed by Ron Shelton, starring Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes and Rosie Perez. Uh, and it's a movie about a bunch of basketball hustlers in California talking shit and playing basketball and trying to make money and it fucking rules. It's so much fun to watch. And uh, I think before we even started recording, the first thing that we were saying was that like, you know, you just don't get them like this anymore. <laughs> they just do not come like this anymore. Um, I hadn't seen it since I was maybe, it was a movie that was like routinely on, um, you know, premium cable, like HBO and Cinemax when I was growing up. So like, I remember watching it all the time and just being, you know, when I was like a teenager, which means I probably didn't get necessarily all of it, but I just found it wildly enjoyable and rewatching it as an adult. It's, it's a joyous movie. Like I think if this movie came out now and it was m like modestly successful, it would potentially be nominated for best picture. Like that's how fucking good it is. Like I, I really do think it would. You're totally like, right. You're a hundred percent right. hundred yes. percent like, right. It would be one of like, like five it, of these sort of like mid-budget movies that get made a year. Yeah. It would be and they would directly just... to Apple Apple TV Plus or something like that. And yeah. And they would just be nominating it like out of respect. Like they'd be like, oh, <laughs> someone got the chance to make one of these movies. We got to nominate it. Oh, Robert Pattinson uh, is in the Woody Harrelson role, obviously. Right. Like, I yeah, right. That. Pattinson. Yeah, doesn't that sound great? Um, so what... 
So what is uh, what is your guys' relationship with White Men Can't Jump before we really get into, you know, everything that we thought of the movie and some of the lore behind it? This was a very first time watch for me. Um, and so glad that I finally saw it. This was like my first, I think I was telling you guys off, off mic before we started, my first experience with Ron Shelton at all. Have, have never seen Bull Durham either. Um, haven't even, I don't think, seen anything he's ever written like uh, like Blue Chips, like the, the Friedkin movie with Nolte and Shaq. But um, so glad that you all asked us to watch it and that I got a chance to um, and going to be seeking out everything this guy has made uh, now, probably. Well, so wait, I would like to talk about this, about Ron Shelton, okay. right? So, <laughs> and I know that like we're all being, we're all having a great time talking about this movie, but this is one of the, my, maybe like my criticisms of this movie, like, nope. So shut up, Ricky. <laughs> so Ron Shelton is the man who directed uh, Bull Durham and Tin Cup, mm-hmm. okay, which are two of maybe the most, the whitest, baddest movies that exist. <laughs> And he is also the man, of course, who directed the seminal streetball movie, White Men Can't Jump. Like, it's very weird that this extremely, extremely square white guy is the person that made this movie. And I mean, you have to say, like, white men is, like, literally the first two words of the title. So it's not like it's, it's like, somehow stealth that this is what's going on. You're um, missing a movie in your argument. I'll help. I, I disagree with your point, but you're missing a movie that will help prove your point which is that after White Men Can't Jump, before Tin Cup, he directed Cobb with Tommy Lee Jones yep. playing notoriously <laughs> racist Ty baseball Cobb. player. What? Why? Why has this man made this movie? Three, Can anyone uh, explain this to me? A three-hour a three hour epic about the notoriously violent and racist Ty Cobb that features full frontal, male full frontal nudity. And of which course... Are, the movie immediately, immediately before that, that he made was White Men Can't Jump. Like, why? <laughs> why? Well, what was interesting to Ron Shelton? Supposedly, this comes from his real life, right? Like, he really used to play pickup basketball, and he just thought, like, isn't this a cool world? Like, I'd love to write a story about this. And well, like, he played pickup basketball. The story is that he played pickup basketball, and he would play on the streets in California. And then one day he heard about. Um, <clears throat> someone who lost the game or got hustled going into their glove compartment and getting a gun and coming back and shooting somebody. So then he and his friends moved their game to the Y apparently, (laughs) but that that's stuck with him. And his white flight experience became white men can jump. This this movie is his reclamation of the, of the uh, street courts. Oh boy. But it is very odd. Right. And it is coming from an odd point of view. And I often did find myself wondering about, like the racial politics of this movie, like are they good or are they not good? You know, they're great. <laughs> I I will make this argument about it, uh, and then we can maybe let Carly talk a little bit about it too, because I know she's got thoughts. But no, uh, this is the conversation I want to have. I I would argue that by virtue of their existence, they are good because yes. we do not get anything even remotely this nuanced in culture and media at large in 2022 i think something that is like even if it's you know maybe considered culturally problematic in certain ways now or or you know deemed like regressive or or you know the fact that it exists the fact that it acknowledges race and distinction along those lines and has conversations about it within the film i think is impressive um and maybe it's just you know watching it 30 years on but it's 
I, I was just like, I wish more films did this kind of thing still. Um, we have a, a good friend of the show uh, named Zach Vasquez, great writer. You can follow him on Twitter. Oh, who yeah. wrote? Who I, wrote? I in, follow Zach. He's great. He's excellent. Um, and and he wrote this really phenomenal piece, I think, for Crooked Marquee, um, about this very thing. About yeah, I was just trying to find it. Yeah, it's about you know sort of like the prominence of like the racialized action movie in the eighties and nineties and how it's gone away. Um, obviously, this one is more of a comedy sports movie, but. I think but it's in the, the same vein. No, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. I, I just like that it exists. I like that it has these conversations. Um, I think this movie is in this genre, and I was going to save this for the end of the show, but this is a genre of movie I would call like racially aware. Yes. Like not necessarily racially like correct. Like you wouldn't necessarily say everything that it's doing is spot on, but it's, it's, it's aware of and acknowledging race like all the time. Which is this 80s and 90s kind of thing that I totally feel like has gone away in, in movies. Yes. I would argue in terms of art, racially aware is more correct than racially correct is. Yes. Yep. Yeah. No, correct. I, I agree. That, that that's, Carly, go ahead. That Sorry. Is the <laughs> no, I was just going to say that's the argument that Zach, lovely Zach Vasquez makes in his piece, particularly around the consummate uh, lethal weapon, where um, that's not to say that like, there aren't conversations in the film that aren't racist, right? But that does not a racist movie make. And I think like that awareness is the thing that, you know, has rotated in our current moment toward like complete erasure, like hyper awareness equals now complete erasure of the problem. Like we just, make everything look like the United Colors of Benetton and then like, it's okay, right? Racism doesn't exist anymore. But acknowledging that there are conversations that are challenging and, un and uncomfortable between a Woody Harrelson and a Wesley Snipes is important. I think also if this were to be made today, it would be so much more directly and only about the race level of it. Yes. Whereas a movie like this is very comfortable being like, they're joking around they're talking about how they need to get a bunch of money and then they're talking about like oh well you're a black guy so you think this and i'm a white guy so i think that and then it just goes back to talking about something else again for a while yep which i think be like woody, woody harrelson yeah. would like stop the movie and be like wow i never knew it was like that for you yeah i'm sorry <laughs> exactly and, and this is exactly. and this is an important distinction that you you brought up chris it's that racially aware is just racially aware movies their racial politics provide texture and nuance to the characters. Racially correct movies feel like the more uh, the more common mode now. And those kinds of movies make racial correctness the entire mode and purpose of the story often. Yes. Like they are about racism or addressing race. That's all good and fine. There's a, definitely a place for those kinds of stories. But so often it's handled in a way that feels like so toothless that a lot of movies about race in 2022 kind of play out like you're reading a Twitter thread, you know? Well, I would, I would argue sometimes that they're, that they're more racist often because yes. the, they did not, they deny people of color, any kind of agency and they're often cast as the victim. And then at the same time, this sort of, like you said, Carly, this United Colors of Benetton ad removes any kind of awareness of the reality because the reality is too uncomfortable. So therefore, they're trying to portray what they think the world should be rather than, than it is. In this movie, Wesley Snipes, 
does live in a different part of town. Wesley yep. Snipes does live in an apartment complex that's rife with crime, and they're worried about some of the bad kids stealing from them. You know, like he does hang out with prime, like mostly black guys, and Woody Harrelson has to go over there and spend time with them. Like all that stuff is, and they have differences you know in in what they talk about what they care about what their lives are like but the movie doesn't feel the need to stop to like record scratch to explain that they're different it just allows them to exist within within the same space with each other yeah and it feels more organic the way that like two human beings would speak in real life whereas i feel like a lot of the conversations that are architected around you know racism capital r conversations or or you know feminism or whatever it is like they don't feel like people speaking they feel like someone writing a script to you know make a point about a thing i really really appreciate it like an essay that has turned into dialogue yes but like even worse than that because it's like not a good essay it's like not something you'd find on jstor and be like oh i'm into this it's like a terrible (laughs) like it's a twitter thread yeah, it's a Twitter thread, exactly. Um, the the conversation that they have about Jimi Hendrix in the car <laughs> is like perfect. It's it is a way for them to talk about race, but do it in the context of like a thing that you would absolutely talk about, which is music, and that there are things that would come up in and around race that would that would be related to that conversation about Jimi Hendrix. And then they move on and they talk about something else to your point. Like it feels organic. And it also, I think makes it, it leaves more of a mark because it's less intrusive. And when that conversation comes back, because the whole thing in the Jimi Hendrix conversation is like, you're listening, but you're not, you can't hear it at the end of the movie. When I think he says, you're finally starting to hear it. He doesn't necessarily say that in reference to a conversation about race or anything else. He's actually saying it in regards to Billy's own failures. Yes. And how, how, what, like the way that Billy fails all the time. That's when he says it. They don't, he doesn't like, Billy doesn't suddenly like see someone get like denied, like, you know, someone black getting like denied something at the park or something or pushed aside or like unjustly arrested by a cop. And then Wesley Snipes is like, now you're starting to hear, aren't you? Like, it's, it does, like that's not what happens. He yeah. can hear because they're friends now. Yes, precisely. And also, like, the point of the movie that I also appreciate is that this isn't the point, but it is a point. Woody Harrelson's character doesn't really evolve all that much. Like, he's, he's, he's all, fuck up. basically so the good. same guy at the end of the movie, right? And when he when he has the chance to change, he's still an idiot. Like, she's know. she's like, if you do this, you like, I will leave you. And he's like, okay, but I can win. <laughs> he's like, wait, wait, wait a second. Just just hear me out. No, you baby, you don't get it. This time, I'm gonna win. Like he I promise. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's never been able to guarantee it before. This time he can guarantee his victory. And then what's interesting is like she does leave him. Like that is what happens in the movie. She doesn't come back, which is like pretty great. It's fucking perfect. I so so love that about that about this film. Like the I don't want to say novelty, but the the sort of specialness of the situation wherein Rosie Perez as one of the protagonist's romantic interests says, I'm going to leave you. And then like, they don't end up together. 
that <laughs> like yeah that's something that like ha- t- carried a carried a lot of weight with me watching it now as an adult I was like oh I really appreciate that she she is a woman of principle in the movie it would not make sense for her to be like I'm gonna leave you if you do this thing and then her be like oh Johnny I was just kidding or whatever his name is like, right to like show up to show up at the big yeah, game yeah like yeah totally you did it well, yeah. and the same, and, and in terms of a woman of principle, the same I think can be said, even though it's a smaller part for Wesley Snipes' wife, who her her big moment is saying, "I'm getting a job." Like you cannot stop me from getting a job anymore because he keeps trying to say, "No, I'm the man of the house." Like you can't you can't do this. And eventually, he has to he has to give in because of external forces and also because that's his wife and that's what she wants. Yeah, I did like their relationship, and it's very interesting because like. They don't paint her as like a, you know, like a sexy lady or like, you know, it's not, it's like he has like a real adult wife, you know, which is a very (laughs) interesting choice for this movie, you know? Totally. And it's like, it it puts his character in such an odd context, right? Because he's like, he's like the bad little boy at home. Like he's like the irresponsible (laughs) one, even though he seems so confident out in the world. There's a, there's a great, so the ringer released or not released the ringer published some like oral history of white men can't jump a few years ago. And there's a bit in it where the actress who played uh, Wesley Snipes wife, um, she got a call back and she didn't think she was going to get it. And on her way out, she basically said to Ron Shelton, I may not get this role because there's bigger actresses going for this, but cast a black woman. Don't cast a light skinned black woman because we never get to see like true black men with like, with like real, with like dark skinned black women and like, and full lips. And that's what we want to see on screen. That's what black women on screen. She, she, in the, in the, (laughs) in the, in the, the ringer oral history. She has this whole thing where she talks about what she said to him. It's super long. And Shelton's response was, I just cast the right people for the movie and I liked her. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do appreciate your point, Chris, about the adultness of their relationship and also like how strange of a counter it is to the kind of rep that Wesley Snipes' character has on the courts. And you really feel it in the earliest parts of the film when they're first, when Woody Harrelson's character and Wesley Snipes' character, why can't I remember their names? Sydney and Billy. Billy Ho. Billy, Billy Hoyle. Oh, Billy, Billy Hoyle. Billy Ho, that's right. Um, when Billy Ho, when Billy Ho and Sydney are uh, are playing ball and Billy. As, yeah, as they are often in the movie. As they I are often. <laughs> often. Their, their first, their, their first encounter um, on the courts. And, uh, Billy has just bested Sydney and um Sydney's wife calls for him and like he had just spent like the first 20 minutes of the film like talking shit and like being hot shit and all this stuff and then like his wife calls him over and he's like he walks up to her and they have like a conversation about like fucking dinner or something I don't even remember what it was yeah, right. but like and it was it was a really cool moment where I was like oh yeah like he's a wife guy. <laughs> and you know what else is weird is like, I totally agree. And like Wesley Snipes, he's hot shit. He looks like a million fucking dollars. Oh my God. Movie. He's so cut. He, yeah. And he's always wearing these tank tops where all you can see are his pecs. Amazing stuff. It's never, never in the good. movie is, is it a thing that he's like flirting with other women or like even that other women are flirting with him. It's like, 
he has his wife. He is a wife guy. And that is the end of his story, you know, yeah. like, which is really interesting. Totally. I think with both of their characters, both the character of Sydney and his wife counter very directly pretty prominent mainstream narratives around black men and women of the time, particularly like the welfare queen and, uh, you know, black men who like don't want to work and who are drug addicts and all this stuff. Right. And neither of them are those things. And I think like it, it might feel quaint now to look back on it and say like, Oh, this was like countering a stereotype or a, or a prominent, you know, sort of political narrative of the time. But it was, and I think that's like incredibly rare in a lot of films that they don't even talk about it. Yes. Like they don't even have like family members that are drug addicts or anything like that. And in fact, the 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 one moment that it kind of plays with the stereotype is that when Woody Harrelson goes over to Wesley Snipes' house, there's a guy in the house polishing a gun. And it's like, what the fuck is this guy doing polishing a gun? Is it just like like if you haven't seen the movie before, you could potentially in that moment be like is it just because a group a, bla- a group of black guys are together that somebody suddenly has a gun? But then, like four scenes later, he's a security guard. Yes, and it totally <laughs> and it totally checks out that he would be like have just come from work and is like cleaning his gun before yeah. having to go like before going home that night. Yes, and it's like a it's it's kind of cool that they that they play with that, and also it's like the only way they can like barely get away with the fact that suddenly this guy can get Rosie Perez on oh stage for Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the plot of this movie doesn't make any sense. Like, like, from clearly, top to bottom, like... clearly they shot the scene uh, in Wesley Snipes' house after they shot the scene where like they find out about the security guard because it's like, fuck, we should do something to set that up. Yeah, like, right. uh... And also, according to the movie, the way you get you get to be a contestant on Jeopardy is like, if somebody sneaks you onto the lot, then you will be on Jeopardy. There is no middle step. Like you will be on TV. But this is where fucking good filmmaking kicks in because you (laughs) buy it. And the reason that you buy it, well, you buy it one because the characters have been building so well, but you also buy it because they're fucking around making a bet. And then the fucking ball goes in snap cut to Jeopardy. (laughs) And you're just, in there's no one explaining it there's no walking on there's no like trying to get around it's like nah she's on jeopardy boom we're we're, and you're just you're with it it's fun and why would you why would you want to stop it and you just like enjoy the novelty of it where it's like you know you hear the the classic theme music you see the set and i'm like is alex trebek gonna like be in the movie and then he is and you're like oh my god okay Incredible. And then not only is he in the movie, there's like five solid minutes of a Jeopardy episode yeah. in this yeah. movie. <laughs> you get like you get like wrapped in this, you know, actual like Jeopardy episode where you were like, oh, she's doing a really good job. Like <laughs> it's a thrilling montage, by the way. It's yeah. fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah. It is funny to watch them try to shoot an episode of Jeopardy like more exciting than the way Jeopardy already looks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I I was like, oh, no, I'll take right. Like regular Jeopardy's plenty for me. Thank you. I appreciated the like tessellation of like Rosie Perez like answering all of these questions though like I liked that that worked for me like zooming in and out on the category names like (laughs) oh yeah when they kept doing the like the montage of all of the tv screens and all of her her face like popping in like screens answering Mm -hmm. the question yeah um so I want to go back to something that you said which is that uh you know we were talking about the first scene of the movie and you just casually said Carly, 20 minute scene. And I was wondering if you guys had the same experience as I did watching it this time, because I didn't remember this, 
But like two thirds of the way through that scene, I was like, what is this? The Like, are we like 20 minutes into the first scene? Is the first scene of this movie 20 minutes long? That's fucking crazy yeah. that he did this because it's so entertaining and fun. But yeah, it's like a 20, 25 minute opening scene, one set basketball court with the exception of the one moment where like, what he's walking he's like is this where the duke and the king played or whatever and the guy's like yeah sing some songs and he walks away oh my god it's like it's like that thing you do when he's like yes. yo you want to see some good jazz like, yeah <laughs> yeah I, but i just couldn't i couldn't believe it it's incredible it's it's so good i like you know there are movies that are more deliberately paced than white men can't jump uh but you know i often kind of measure just personally when I watch a movie, like how quickly a film can carry me through those first like 20 to 30 minutes, like through that first act of the film. And, you know, if I haven't checked my watch, if I'm not like, Oh, where's this going? And, you know, kind of like seeing how, how far we've made it. I'm hooked immediately. It, uh, it actually to me bared similar kind of resemblances to uh, Oliver Stone's any given Sunday, which maybe you've seen, I don't know if you have yet. Um, Not since it came out, I I really need to rewatch. It is one of my wife's favorite movies, and she quotes it constantly. Well, (laughs) she is a smart lady. Your wife is good people. It's one of my favorite Oliver Stone movies, for sure. It's a great sports movie. Um, But both of them just sort of start kind of like in media res, like in the middle of this game. One a pickup game, one like, you know, on on the actual like football greens. And and, uh, it it just goes. And then it's over, and you're like, wait a minute. Was that the entire first act of the movie? Like, did, did we just spend the entire opening 20, 25 minutes of this movie in one place with these characters doing all this introduction within the action? Um, and I, I got to be honest, I didn't expect it from a 1992 comedy called White Men Can't Jump. And, and yet, here we are. Well, because it's also seamless, right? I feel like... and. I, maybe I shouldn't even say this because, like I said, I haven't seen Any Given Sunday in a long time. But I, I bet there's even a feeling in Any Given Sunday where, like, the movie kind of knows that it's laying on the first act in the opening. Yeah, it's setting things up a little bit oh, more. Stone yeah. is a bit more of, like, a self-conscious filmmaker, I think, than Shelton. Whereas with this, it feels like such an effortless film that when you suddenly realize the first scene has been 20 minutes long and how hard it is for a movie to do that and just all at the same time feel effortless about it that's when i was kind of like and then when i what i mean when i say like i think this movie would be nominated for best picture if it were released today (laughs) i fully agree it's just like the dialogue between them is poppy and funny and like kinetic they themselves are kinetic like they're they're moving they're um they're tossing back the ball as they're tossing back insults. Like their, their clothing is exciting and colorful. Like it's oh just God. one of those, it's one of those like movies that from the jump just fills your screen with stuff to look at, but doesn't feel yeah. like it's trying hard. Um, and it's very clear that Shelton knows and loves Los Angeles. It's like shot like a person it's shot from the perspective of a person who knows these places, who wants you to see Okie Dog, but like doesn't want to make a big deal about it, who like wants to shoot this mural, but doesn't want to make a big deal about it. Um, and it's just like, there's, it's so and, sumptuous. 
and like so and and i t- about it being los angeles and about the way that the movie just starts and goes and it completely envelops you it's like you don't stop and think for a second like 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 you just believe that venice beach is the home of basketball like there's no <laughs> right? reason yeah, exactly. that isn't even true it's you know <laughs> but then it's like the movie starts and and you're like wow venice beach the best place to play basketball <laughs> <laughs> Where all the hustle happens, Venice Beach. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I think it, it has to be said though that one of the reasons the movie can achieve this, and not just not not necessarily the idea of like sustaining an opening twenty minutes, but uh, the look that it has is money. Like it was made. I think the budget at the time was thirty one million dollars, which now would be about sixty million dollars, <laughs> which is the was the budget of Gone Girl. Um, I believe so. Like that's like a lot. That's a lot of money to set the scene to have like peripheral scenes that add character development versus just drive the plot. And so you do get all these like beautiful crane shots that opens that you used to get all the time in '90s movies. They established a place, right? Like yes. cut to we're on top. This is a seedy motel on this highway in Los Angeles, and we come down into the room or something. Like it does it. It does that a bunch of times. And I think that does a great job of like setting the scene. So then when you get into the room or get onto the court, everybody can talk shit for like 10 minutes because now you've got this, this, this area and this place that's been set up so beautifully. Right. I mean, you just I feel, really like, you're feel watching, like you don't get that. You're watching real people in a real place, like actually interact with each other, yes. which it's, it's funny. It, that should be so simple, but right. It takes so much work and money and it's not often done these days well and there's no trust that an audience would find that entertaining anymore like the the stakes have just been ratcheted up to the point of like the, the expectation being that the movie cannot just be what you just said chris which is just people in a place talking like real human beings like there has to be some message or there has to be, you know, uh, f- this fucking superhero or whatever if it is, right? they don't sink this basket, like, the world's going to explode. Yes, and, literally. Like, yeah. I don't think, I don't, if this movie were made now, I don't think we would have Billy and Rosie Perez's backstory with the, the bookies that they owe money to. No. <laughs> no, I, I, I think we would probably have Wesley and his wife's story of, like, maybe trying to move to a different house or trying to trying to figure that out. I don't think we would have the Jeopardy story. No fucking way. That would, that would not. So I mean, Rosie Perez's so character would like near, be almost like cut completely. Yep. She would be there. Maybe she would like, like, she would like have some kind of like fashion business, <laughs> like that she was yeah. trying to get going. She absolutely would. She'd be a girl boss. Yeah. 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 She'd be like, I'm doing this for my brand. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is funny because like you know whatever misgivings we might have about the racial politics of the movie like the gender politics of this movie are like really solid i like i love rosie perez in this movie you know and and you know uh, and people may disagree with that but she feels like she's just doing the kind of character that at this point she was known for you know it's not too dissimilar from the the same kind of mode she was in and do the right thing yeah it's very very similar to her character and do the right thing yep. and for so you long you get the feeling that ron shelton would love to shoot a sex scene like in do the right thing oh. but doesn't quite have the balls to do a it thousand you know? percent. absolutely well she yeah. she apparently didn't refuse to kind of do a sex scene like do the right thing there's a really long quote from her 
from uh, that ringer piece where she says that she felt pretty exploited by do the right thing. So she was extremely nervous about doing the sex scenes in this. And there was a moment where uh, uh, they choreographed the scene and he goes, okay, let us know when you're ready. She says, I stayed in the bathroom forever. I just couldn't come out. Woody knocked on the door and was like, are you okay? I said, yeah, I just need a second. He said, well, you know, you've been in there for 30 minutes. And I was like, well, I'm going to feel weird because you're going to see my body. And he said, I have the utmost respect for you and love working with you. And there is nothing but respect for you from the whole cast and crew. And we're going to take it slow. Really nice guy, right? She opens the door and she's standing there half naked. And he goes, oh, my God, look at your tits. They're beautiful. (laughs) I slammed the door. I started cracking up and I go, you're such a pig, Woody. And he goes, I'm sorry, they're huge. And you're just so tiny. (laughs) Also, I I love imagine her saying you're such a pig, Woody, in that Rosie Perez voice. Like after slamming the door naked, like that's such a Rosie Perez thing to do. Tits (laughs) are amazing and she's very tiny. Her body is out of control in this movie. (laughs) Something incorrect, but it may have been incorrect to do it in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was yeah, I was convinced yeah. that this movie was going to be a lot meaner to Rosie Perez. Like, they kind of give her, like, set her up to, like, have this dream of, like, being on Jeopardy. And from the get-go, you sort of assume that this is going to be unrealized and that she's there just to be disappointed by, you know, the the shitty guy, by, by Billy. And that she's the butt of a joke, potentially. And sort of that she's the butt of a joke, right? That she's, like, you know, like, that we're, that we're meant to, like, kind of enjoy the movie at her expense where she's doing all this work she's learning all these things reading all these almanacs and that it's just like a delusion and then she goes and wins jeopardy and it's like really rewarding i actually like i I love that it it does that and gives her an opportunity to come out like victorious and on top in the movie that is so hard to do in a movie too to make that feel believable is a hard thing to say because it doesn't even feel like the movie really works that hard to make it believable it's there's just like a lightness a touch and a fun to the movie and you're along for the ride that like you are when she starts winning at jeopardy you're not like come on this is stupid you're just you're rooting for her you're excited but it reminds me of like um and maybe this is a bad analogy but like at the end of licorice pizza Mm -hmm. you know they're they're frolicking together the last shot is have you seen it Yes, yes we have Okay, cool. So, like, the last shot is the two of them frolicking together, and she says, I love you, Gary. And that's the last line of the movie. And I was kind of like, "How? that is so fucking hard to do, to end your movie on that line and have it feel earned and have it successful. That's true. Because I heard that line, and I was like, yes, I cannot believe you had the guts to do that, and it worked. That's amazing. And I feel like there's something about, uh, like, Rosie Perez's Jeopardy winning that feels a little like that, too. Like, I don't know how you made that work because it's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, I agree it's great, but it it's like I, I would like to talk about the plotting of this movie. But you don't believe bit. that you don't you don't you don't believe that uh Rosie Perez, a woman like Rosie Perez could win a Jeopardy Chris? Is that what you're gonna <laughs> say? Of course, of course that's wow. exactly what it I sounded meant. like it sounded like that's that's where you're yeah. going. That's where you're no, going. You know, it almost makes me it I kept thinking of like Billy Madison or something during this part yes. of the movie. Because it's this way where stuff if a, if you were making a comedy in the nineties, nobody really knew what that meant. Well, like a comedy movie, it just like a bunch of stuff happened. 
you yes. know, like, like what if there were a bunch of situations these characters got into? And I, that's kind of what this movie becomes at a certain point, because like I was saying, I want to talk about the plotting. Like, like there is, it's a sports movie, right? Oh, there yeah. is no climactic sports match. Or if there is a climactic sports match, it happens like 45 minutes into the movie. And then there's another hour of the movie afterwards because there is no plot structure. And that's another thing that if this movie came out today, it would all be about building up to the big thing because they need the money for the thing. But I mean, that was even at the time, like Billy Madison, that's the plot structure. Like this movie is less well plotted than Billy Madison, you know? The the big thing is like a throwaway. The big thing is like all of a sudden Wesley Snipes appears and it's like, Hey, the Duke. The Duke is playing, and he's like, "I gotta play." You're like, "What?" I I don't know if I agree with you on this one, Chris. I will push back on this one. Like the, the fucking po- go to hell, then, bro. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna fight each other uh, in real life. We'll have ourselves a rumble. I love it. But I don't know. You know, I I too was kind of surprised that they, you know, this sort of. Uh, I don't know if I call it a MacGuffin, whatever you want to call it, whatever plot device it is that like this big tournament turns out to be like, it really is just there to be like the apex of their success of their winnings of their like working together just so that he can lose all of the money over again. Yes. And it offers, I think probably the most, like it's the biggest gut punch in the movie where like they have won the movie should ostensibly be over at this point. All their troubles are solved. And then over like the dumbest fucking bet you could possibly imagine. Like, can you dunk? I just need like, I just need what five tries. And he doesn't do it. And he loses his entire cut of the earnings, like on some crappy, like street court, you know, like that. I don't know that that worked for me. I thought that that was good. And I thought that it was like more, kind of the point of, of even like that latter half of the movie. Yes. That's what the champion is. Championship is about. It's about the shit that happens afterwards. It's not about them winning. It is about <coughs> him raising the stakes enough so that their, their freedom from the Stucci brothers is, is within grasp and that his own stupidity and hubris and like, you know, I carry in vision of himself is the thing that keeps getting him in trouble. And I also like that it's totally anticlimactic the way he loses the $5,000 or whatever winnings they just got from the championship. It's literally just him and Wesley like talking shit and one minute he has the money and the next minute he doesn't. And Wesley's just like, all right, dude, uh, have a good night. Good luck with uh, your girl. He tries to stop him, but not enough to not take the money, right? right? Exactly. Which is like a great, a great character like trait that he he knows this is bad. He knows he can't do it. He feels for him, but also fuck him. This is really <laughs> dumb. Yes. Like he deserves yeah. that. To and get he's insisting he's like to this. do it, you know. Yeah. So Literally. it's like, all right, fine. You want to do it? Great. Go ahead. It's do the it. only consistent principle that they have throughout the movie, more or less. Besides maybe like, you know, Wesley Snipes, like devotion to his wife. We already said he's a wife guy. But like <laughs> between the two of them and specifically with Woody, the only like actual loyalty he has is to the principle that like when you place a bet, you either like win big or you pay up. And that's it. I think when you were talking about the anticlimactic uh, championship, I for a second thought you were talking about the end of the movie being anticlimactic, <laughs> which it is. It is. It is. But it's done in somehow, slow-mo. the entire thing is in slow motion yes. for five but six it's, minutes. 
it still works somehow. Yes, totally he does. doesn't get the girl. It's not even that we see Wesley Snipes moving into the new place with his with his wife. We know that they won twenty five hundred dollars, right? Is that what they won? Yes, yeah. they won twenty five hundred dollars, which is less than they won at the championship. championship. So, so how? Which so like ostensibly Wesley Snipes essentially walked away from the championship with ten thousand dollars. Yes, right. Billy and his cut. And for some reason, they didn't move out with that money. Now he needs to win $2,500, and that's enough to move out? Whatever. It doesn't make any... And to replace all his stuff that was stolen? Like, is that what he needs the money for? To buy new stuff? To replace his, you know... Didn't he have renter's insurance? Wesley, come on. But they win the game, and in the midst of winning the game, Woody's character dunks, right? And it's like, yay, that's great. And then he loses his girlfriend and then they go to the park and toss the ball around. And that's the end of the fucking movie. <laughs> yes. It's glorious. It's glorious. It literally ends the same way that the movie starts more or less, which is just them talking shit on a court. Right? Like it's perfect. It's a perfect bookend. And I didn't even mind that they were silhouetted. Like I was like, all right. But I was also like, oh, all I was right. into it. It's great. It's fair. Yeah, it's I was totally into the silhouetting. Yeah. But I think it's a, another great example of like, if you have enough story in the movie, meaning character, meaning moments that happen between these characters, you don't need to do all of the things that we keep saying that movies try to do all the time now. Like you can break those all of those rules if there are enough fun, engaging moments that make you like and care about the characters, yes, you know, completely. Like I think I saw, I think I saw you on Twitter compare this to Uncut Gems. Yes, I was going to mention this. So, uh, Carly does not like this comparison. No, uh, it's not that I don't like the comparison. It's I just, just there are two different types of movies. It's apples and oranges, but kind, I get it. Kind Go of, ahead. but it's I, two movies about sports gambling. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's but, true. But they are similar movies. You know, like they are. To an extent, like, you know, Harrelson and, and Sandler's characters both are these guys who are just, like, driven by this, like, irrepressible urge to gamble everything away to, like, bet big. And, you know, one of them's, like, a hustler and one's just, like, a degenerate sports gambler and, like, a philanderer and, you know, a, a just just a total scumbag you know it's but it's like it's really just like white men can't jump is like the the happy like comedy version of uncut gems like one of them <laughs> one of them ends with the bookies like you know blowing his brains out and then this one you know is like oh he actually like ends up winning and paying off his debts and kind of changing a little bit and realizing that he has to get his shit together but like i mean it is interesting because the movie doesn't even though like, what you're saying is totally right, it never posits that it's a movie about like Woody Harrelson being a gambling addict. <laughs> but like, really, that kind of is the main motivator of the plot. Yeah, is that he has an out of control gambling addiction. He's got a real fucking problem. Like, it's not it's not a nothing thing. He he is like clearly, uh, he is clearly aggrieved by addiction, and it's it's not. I don't think it's necessarily played for laughs, but it's also not like, it's not like making a statement about, you know, his gambling addiction, but it's like very sad. Like when, when he goes back and tells Rosie that he lost the $5,000, the scene that ensues manages to be very funny and also like very heartbreaking. And and there are so many moments like that in the film, which I think is a credit to just the writing being stellar and also this thing that we keep talking about, which is that 
it feels like real people having real conversations where like it's not like okay now it's time for the serious scene it's like they have a silly moment or you know she spills something or you know she's like being like she doesn't know she doesn't know that he has something bad news to tell her and she's trying to be sexy and happy (laughs) yes how much did you like though that that Harrelson is also often kind of a dick to her. Oh, she's almost constantly. I literally wrote in my notes when we were watching, I was like, Billy is a piece of shit. Like, yes, a huge piece of shit. But it also, it it makes sense that he's like totally impulsive and can't control himself, which is a part of the gambling problem. Right. So like, usually when we see him be a piece of shit to her, it's like, you know, she changed the. She's making fun of his radio, his music, or something, and he and he's he can he just gets he loses it. He can't, which not an excuse for his behavior, but it lines up with how he acts within the film. And yet somehow you still love him yeah. in the movie, which is why I appreciate that she doesn't end up with him, right? Because like yeah. we had we were maybe like thirty minutes into the movie and he had told her to shut up like six times already. And I was like, all right, dude. Like and and it's clear that he does I was like I was like, get out of my relationship movie. Uh. <laughs> He's he is like he loves her. He has feelings for her. But the you know the the thing too that like I had to laugh at was the moment after she wins Jeopardy and she's like on this high of like doing this thing that is hers that she wanted to do for such a long time. And he comes in and he sings her like a weird song that he wrote her. And she just like (laughs) becomes like jelly in his hands again. And I was just like, no, they're not going to do it. But then, like, because they don't end up together, like, you understand that the connection they have is that she wants badly for him to be something that he's not. And she finally realizes that he isn't. And that's when she's like, okay, I got to get out of here. Well, she feels like, okay, well, now we have money. So maybe that will change his behavior. Like, he won't have to hustle for money, which could be the reason for his gambling problem. So I'm going to give him some money. She gives him money, and then he's like, I'm going to go fucking gamble it. Yes. <laughs> yep. He's like, yo, honey, there's this crazy game happening. We got to go. Again. Again. She's like, I wanted you to buy a suit like for a job interview. Yeah. Completely and she gave him $2,000 to buy a suit in 1992. Like That was going to be a nice-ass <laughs> nice. suit. That was like, like Armani. For the clothes. For the clothes. She told him he looked like trash, and he needed to clean up his act. Which she's not wrong got with now. Again, no. the identical climax to Uncut Gems. Like, <laughs> he, he, all of his problems are solved. He has the money back. He has the gem back. Everything is resolved. He can pay off w- the people who are after him. And he just says, let's fucking bet on this thing. Like, let's let's go for it again. Woody does the exact same thing in this movie. Again, it just it's just slightly different. One's victorious. One isn't. Actually, they, and they do both win but he just sandler just gets off before he gets to to take full advantage of the winnings so 
One could argue that he wins there too. That that's what he was after the entire time. That's true. That's true. Was was a bullet in the head. <laughs> it certainly seems like that's what he was seeking throughout. That's very true. He does look like he's smiling when well, he, he's when smiling, he's laying on he's the just ground. Won, he just won the big game, Ricky. He's smiling. He's it's it's called dramatic irony, my friend. That's right. Is he smiling for the big game, or is he smiling because that death drive finally worked? <laughs> yeah, 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 I've never heard of that in my life. Um, Ricky, do you want to do these questions? Do you want to do the questions? Yeah, let's do the questions, but in uh, in just a second, because I've, I there's a couple things from the Ringer article that I think are interesting. I forgot to bring up this when we were talking about the racial aspect of the movie, which is that um, Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson had worked together before on a Goldie Hawn movie called Wildcats that was about a football team. Oh, yes. I remember that movie. And apparently Woody was like the only white guy on the football team, and the rest of the cast were, were, um, were black guys. And um, Goldie Hawn took a liking to Woody and the rest of the cast thought that it was white favoritism. And um, one of the football players, this is from Snipes, one of the football players who was a Muslim from the nation in Chicago would whip on Woody every day and Woody couldn't take it. And he came to me and he said, look, man, what is all this black shit? Why is he saying I'm the devil? Do you think I'm the devil? <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Okay. And, and- Snipes says Snipes follows up with we ended up being friends after that. <laughs> I love that story. I'm so glad you oh brought this God. up because this relates to something I wanted to talk about with regards to Woody's character and like the way that this movie is racially aware. Woody's character is not racially correct. If we're if we're going back to that, no. right? No. He right, is no. like kind of bigoted and extremely full of himself not careful around like what he says or how he says it um with regards to he, he literally does a black guys are like this and white guys are like this yes, like, like two wesley snipes times yeah. and you're like <laughs> okay buddy um but but what i appreciate about that is that felt like who that character would be it also felt like yes. woody harrelson like i was like they're playing with the kind of like Uber that he had from cheers. Right. Where it's like, he had built up this kind of like this series of like cute, cute jokes and cute moments and being like kind of an airhead and like, but also being kind of a dick, but a, a dick with a sweetheart um, or a dick who's a sweetheart. And, and then like, he's in this movie <laughs> and he's just like, no, I like saying a dick with a sweetheart. A I think that's, sweetheart. I like that. A sweetheart with a dick. It's like a hooker with a heart of gold. It's like a dick with a sweetheart. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I just appreciated that his character sort of took that a little bit, his character in this movie took that a little bit further and it just felt really believable. It felt like I was, I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's probably how Woody Harrelson talks to Wesley Snipes, like in real life. I would also say that's probably how a large amount of white people talked to people of color back then. Yeah. And wish they still could now. That's yeah, very true. Yeah, probably. You know? Yeah. Um, and and we should clarify that, like, he's not saying anything that... He's not saying anything horrific, right? Like, he's not, like, a horrific, bigoted racist or anything. He doesn't know any black people. He's new. All he knows is, like, probably, like, media consumption. So, therefore, he has fucking dumb questions and dumb assumptions all the time. And I think, whereas... Maybe this is going too far, but uh, like, whereas I think culturally now someone would be very much more quicker to be like, well, I can't say that. I can't ask that question. I can't do that. 
and there's an element to that that's right. Like, yeah, shut the fuck up. Like, don't bother anybody with your dumb fucking questions. Yep. Yeah. But that also doesn't really help that person express themselves or understand more or get any kind of connection. And so therefore, like, they're just kind of left stumped and uh, like arrested and stuck in a kind of arrested development in terms of racial awareness. And there was like a, I think, seeing Woody Harrelson kind of do this in this movie, it was like, oh, there was a freedom there because it was then up to Wesley Snipes' character to be like, shut up. Yeah. Because sometimes he didn't want to teach him. He would be like, shut up. You're stupid. Like, I don't want to talk about this with you. Yeah. And I think like the the point about about that that I took from it was that like movies now wouldn't wouldn't even show that right which is kind of what we've been saying and that it's contained in this film is not there to like you know make some sort of grand statement about Woody Harrelson's character it's just that the movie is comfortable showcasing that this is how white people talk to black people and like not pretend that that's not the case the movie now is just a silent car ride between Wesley <laughs> yes. Snipes and Woody Harrelson. <laughs> just just, you, just um, listening to Jimi Hendrix. Not hearing it, but listening you, to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to listen to music? No, no, I don't want to listen to music. Any, any. So where did you say you're fr- No, never mind. Sorry, sorry. Yes. Um, uh, so you said you're married. Not, that's not, I'm assuming that you're not married, but you're married, right? Are you married like just <laughs> over and over again? Ricky, let's fucking do these fucking questions, bro. <laughs> okay, let's rock. So at the end of... Uh, at the end of our, our little show here, we ask three questions. Uh, and the first question is pretty simple. It's just, um, what was your favorite part of the movie? I'm sure for some of us, we've already talked about that favorite part. But uh, what is your favorite part of the movie White Men Can't Jump? For me, I think my favorite part is one that we've already mentioned. Uh, it is that entire opening sequence that takes place on the court, um, just the way that it escalates, the way it moves through all these different characters. We get to meet Sydney. We get to meet Billy. Um, it's just, it's effortless. It's fun. Also, we didn't talk much about it, but like, it's cool that like Wesley and Woody like can actually hoop. Like they're doing a lot <laughs> of like the work in some of these yeah. scenes. Like it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, and again, the shots when they're shooting are fucking awesome. It's great. And again, one of those things that like, if you made it today, you would probably just have a lot of the, like the, the ball would not exist, right? It would just be them <laughs> doing like a, a layup into the air in front of a green screen. And then they would put the ball through the, through the net. Um, but I, I just love that, that opening sequence. And I think it's just, it's a, t- a total blast. Do you guys answer your own questions? Ever? Hell, of course oh, we yeah, do. Yeah, 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 of course, course we do. do. Okay. You want me to go next? I'll go next. Yeah, I, I want to hear from you guys. Yeah, um, I want to hear from me too. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> like, I, I mean, it. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm talking now. Thank you very much. So, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I love Rosie Perez in the movie. She's so fantastic. I mean, one of the stories about the movie is that this character was written as like a white Southern Belle character, but then they Rosie Perez got involved in the process somehow, and they were like, oh no, it just it's Rosie Perez. Like that's what the character is now. And she's so apparently Holly Hunter was like going through the auditions. Okay. And was like, was, had done like multiple callbacks and like had done stuff with Woody, like camera tests with Woody before they gave it to Rosie. Supposedly Perez. lots of like really famous people were going out for this movie. Like Keanu Reeves want, wanted the um, Woody Harrelson part supposedly. Yeah. But and he couldn't hoop. 
couldn't yeah, hoop. he couldn't hoop. And there's also this story that Wesley Snipes like intentionally tanked the reading with Keanu because he wanted to do it with Woody Harrelson. Uh, like, oh, I kind of like that. I kind of love that. Keanu, That's cute. Keanu can surf. He can't hoop. Yeah. Can't hoop. Can't fucking hoop. Um, but I, I, one of my favorite thing about the movie, maybe, and this is often when we talk about these movies, is like the clothes. Like I love the clothes in this movie so much. I love it. It's this very particular kind of early '90s style, like a hundred percent nailed. Like the things that people wear in this movie are like yeah, skinny tank tops, bicycle messenger hats. Yep. Like according to the uh, textually in this movie, Wesley Snipes owns several dozen bike messenger hats, which is like <laughs> amazing. Um, yeah. Bike shorts. Woody Harrelson is wearing like a dolphin t-shirt for like a long stretch of the movie and not just a dolphin, but one that's like kind of ratty and like yes. eaten up. I'm like, this is fucking rules. I love this. There's actually like one of the early, early shots in the movie where you can actually see a, a real brand is somebody's wearing a Stussy shirt. Yes. It's like a kid riding a, a skateboard and it's like a big Stussy eight ball shirt. And I was like, it's fucking movie rules. All of these clothes are 100% amazing. And yeah, Woody's wearing like a tie dye baseball cap for a lot of the movie also. Um, I was like perfect nineties, hundred percent nailed it. I love it. I love it. One of my one of my most or my most nineties thing is what is a piece of Woody's wardrobe, but I'm not. I, I'll <laughs> say just that's just a tease for when we get to that. Oh, question. Yeah. I can't, I'm so excited to hear that now. Um, yeah, it's your what, turn, what, Ricky. Um, well, uh, I have to agree with with Aaron that I, I think my favorite part is probably the moment that I realized that it, I was twenty minutes into the movie and it was still one scene. I was just so. I just didn't expect the movie, even in memory, to be that brazen and and sort of daring about what it was going to be. But I, but I'll pick a different one as well, and that is the um, the jump to Jeopardy that we were talking about. That cut is is thrilling because it really feels like the movie is kind of like walking a very thin line at that point as to react as to like what could be as to our suspension of disbelief, and because of the cut. And because of the music and because of how exciting it all feels, you completely stop thinking about reality and just dig into it. And I really appreciated that. And I think the same can be said for the moment with the the bookies who take the picture rather than kill him. Like yeah. because they found such a good joke there that you you buy that rather than like, you know, being like, well, why didn't they just kill him? Or why didn't they at least beat him up? Yep. You know? And because they set it up before by when they show him the, photos, the book yeah. of photos. They're like, they're, they go, hey, show him the pictures. And he's like, look at all these pictures. Do you see this? Do you want this to be you? <laughs> and they cut to the, clo- you know, they open it with a close-up of Woody Harrelson, like dead with blood behind my mouth. And then you hear like, thanks a lot, Billy. He goes, you got it? <laughs> it's so good. It's so, so yeah. good. So what about you? What's your favorite favorite part? Easy answer. Wesley Snipes' body. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Like, stuff, yeah. Right? Incredibly kind. Yeah, I love all the things you guys said, stunning. but like it's it's Wesley Snipes' body. It's fucking unreal. It's right? unreal. Yeah, he's a he's works. a smoke yeah. show in it. It's it's outrageous. He's also and this like, is before everybody was on steroids, right? So like he looks like this. He just looks, he looks like, like this. Like he's also yeah. just and we talked about this when we did Demolition Man. He's fantastic in that movie. Um, he's he just has like a a physical command, like with his form, that um, makes him a great action star. Yes, but also just makes him a great performer. Like, mm-hmm. period. There is something just like 
he just like radiates energy um and he just like has he moves with such alacrity and such like um he just doesn't second guess anything that he's ever doing when he's acting physically and it's really a sight to behold I just love, I'm loving this description and I, I do agree with you with what you're saying, but I'm also imagining myself trying to describe a hot woman and not just saying <laughs> she's really hot. And I think I would have said exactly the same shit you just said. She's got beautiful tits, but I she's so small. I started with that and then I was like, I should probably like say some smart shit about it. Yeah, it's just the way that her, she's in command of her body is like very impressive, you know? Yeah, yeah. Have you guys ever seen King of New York? I still have not seen. Wait, which King one is that? The Abel Ferrara one with. Oh uh, no! It's a great. Uh, it's a great Wesley Snipes performance. It's like Wesley Snipes against Lawrence Fishburne, and like the the Wesley Snipes role was written for a white guy, and they never changed the name, so he's a cop who's named Thomas Flanagan. Yes. Uh, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> That's it's so so perfect. good. So good. Yeah. I love that. It's really, really, it's a really great. I mean, the cast in that is outrageous, but. Snipes, there's something pretty special about him in that movie. Yeah. Well, so before he broke. Let me just say the second question is what's the most 90s thing, which I just to hop on what we're saying and Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes <laughs> is the most 90s yes. thing about this movie. Yeah. That was, like what this Carly's is movie. you're watching you're watching like the master work. Like you're watching him just eat. <laughs> like this is a man in his time and he knows it and he's fucking killing it. He's not paying a penny in taxes and he's living his best life. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's very true. Um, well, my most 90s thing, because I teased it before, is the movie opens with Woody Harrelson walking down the street wearing a parental advisory explicit yes. lyrics yes. fucking t-shirt, which in my mind in the 90s at like 7, 10, 13 years old was like the coolest t-shirt you could wear. Yes. Yeah. I thought like if you were wearing that shirt, you were fucking hit. <laughs> You yeah. were awesome. Yeah, I mean, they had just yeah. invented the parental advisory sticker like a year before, yeah. you know? Like, and now what? badasses are walking around with it on their shirts? Their shirts. <laughs> and it's torn up too. So you're like, oh, like he's like really worn it. Like it's, yeah. Uh-oh, the most 90s thing. I mean, the parental advisory thing is good. It feels like it's like a big middle finger to, to Tipper Gore. Um, <laughs> Take but, that establishment, right? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i don't know what the most 90s thing is here i guess it's like i mean i guess i could be cheap about it and say like the soundtrack is like there's a lot of like good kind of like yeah you know 90s golden era like hip-hop cuts and stuff that like if you were to uh reinterpret or to imitate today everyone would know right away what you were trying to uh evoke right like it, it's it would be like a I don't know. It, it it just feels really organic. Again, like everything else in the movie, it feels really effortless. And you see, especially now, because we're in that kind of 30 year cycle, a bunch of movies and, and media trying to recreate this era of the 90s. And the needle drops are all pretty obvious and kind of, you know, just like so obvious. They're a little shoehorned. I mean, the most egregious example to me, I think, is one that I watched last year, which was part of that uh, that uh, Netflix uh, Fear Street thing mm. where like they did like the 1994 oh, yeah. one and it's just like the this doesn't work for me it, it feels like you are curating a like 90s playlist um and this one just like never did it just felt organic and it just grooved right along and because it it was 
it was from the it's from the right well there's all often obviously that like it, it, it is easier to do it when it's just like oh this is this is mainstream this, and this current, just life. in the moment exactly <laughs> uh, they're just taking songs that they can get the rights to yes. that like people are creating in the moment yeah, yeah. Uh, my most 90s thing is um, the Air Jordan 6s, the white and maroon Air Jordan 6s. Oh, yeah. That is, yeah, yeah. that's an iconic shoe. Iconic the shoe. Or the pumps. The pumps. The yeah. pumps as well. The high yeah, the white is- socks that yeah. go up yeah, to your very- shin. But like they work. Like somehow that shit is working. And yeah. Like it looks great. It looks you know? so it's good. On- there, it's on movie stars. Like, there's like, there's a no. Like I don't Woody think Har- that's it. I don't think that's it, Ricky. No, be like else. Woody Harrelson and 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 uh, and Wesley Snipes are movie stars for a reason, right? Like and it's not just because like, yeah, right. yeah, they're incredibly good looking, but they're also like charismatic, and like you can put them in anything, and you will kind of believe it or be interested to see like what they're gonna do. So the last question is, um, what do you think we've grown out of? And uh, oftentimes this question requires a little bit of explanation. <laughs> so it's basically kind of like often, I mean, we've been talking about it this entire podcast, right? Which is like the racial awareness, racial correctness versus racial awareness of the movie. But it doesn't necessarily just have to be uh, political. It can be sort of, you know, any other aspect of the right. of the movie as well. What have we culturally grown out of? If I can just jump in and say my answer is the racial awareness thing. Like that was such a 90s thing yep. and it was mm-hmm. such a foundational part of culture at that moment. And it just, that is not the way we relate to these issues anymore. Not even close. Mm-mm. And it's just very interesting to be thrown back into that that world and swim in it for a little while and be like, it's coming from a society that was so racist and so racially yes. unaware that the bar was pretty low. Like just having a major motion picture that was like a black guy and a white guy can just be friends. <laughs> People would be like, Oh really? Is that a thing? Can, can, can that happen? Yeah. Um, and so it's like, it is, it was progressive in its own way, even though it doesn't seem like it now. It, it was just that society was was in such a different place. It's almost well, impossible to imagine, you know. Mm-hmm. Do 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 you have an answer for this question, Ricky? What have we grown out of? Yeah. Um. I mean, I th- I feel like I have this answer almost every movie that that we do, which is um, I feel like we've just like economically the movie industry has just grown out of this movie, mm-hmm. a movie like this, yep. you know. Everything that we're talking about what this movie would be now is not necessarily because the filmmaker wants it to that to be that way. It's because they don't really have the money to do what this movie does. And like when you're watching this movie, you're not necessarily being like, wow, what a big budget movie. But I watch this movie and I'm like, wow, they had a, a lot of money to shoot a lot of story. Um, and that's part of the reason that I think movie and also, you know, this would probably be like a Netflix series of some kind. And it would look like absolute trash compared to what this looks like. Yep. You know, yep. 35 millimeter film in 1992 looks more like reality than fucking like uh 4k shooting with like barely lighting some redressed Netflix conference room to yep. look like a character's <laughs> bedroom. Totally. Yes. You know, like, Absolutely. These are real locations shot on 35 millimeter film, probably with a huge crew that spent far longer lighting it. Yes. Than like, you know, someone, someone gets the chance to light. 
someone probably got the chance to light on Coda, for all I know. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that movie, but I'm just assuming. <laughs> well, it's going to be a Best they Picture were, were winner after this movie, weekend. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think so. Maybe. Do you Which really so think is that, is that true? I, I don't know. That's just my hot take. It's like, That's your hot take. I, you know, power of the dog power to the dog you know like <laughs> i i think it's a really good movie it would be nice to see jane campion win a best picture uh but that, I, wait 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 that that that's from finding forrester right where he says power to, power the, dog. to the dog <laughs> you're the man now. <laughs> power to the dog uh yeah power I, I to know. the dog <laughs> <laughs> there it is i i just think that coda seems like the kind of movie that the academy w- will vote on it's like a feel-good thing um, you know, it's got a, a former Best Actress winner in Marley Matlin in the lead. It's about like, you know, deaf people and and culture around that, and and you know, like doing something that feels progressive and is about it's like, like an a issue thing. movie. It yeah. is. It's it's an issue movie that's sort also of. like feel good, and it, it just kind of feels like the type of thing that they would award. And it is watchable. Is the thing about Coda is mm. I thought I I watched it and I ex- I expected to to just hate it and be feeling tortured. But it is like it's a watchable movie. Like that the way I always describe it to people is like the absolute best Disney Channel original movie. Like the <laughs> yeah. absolute <laughs> best take it. possible. There you yeah. go. Would watch. Yeah. Would watch the yeah. absolute it best is, Disney is, Channel original movie. I, I haven't seen it, but I've been surprised that like people coming out of the woodwork to be like, I can't believe this is going to win Best Picture. Because I'm like, have you have you never seen the Oscars? Have you literally never won seen Best Picture? The, yeah. Like, yes. Mean, yeah. Also, like, like you're mad about something else. It's not this. There's there, there's right, something else yeah. going on that you're upset about. The Oscars very well. That's the, the that's correct. the other thing because I keep being like I keep seeing people bring this stuff up and I kind of want to be like, you don't even like movies. <laughs> like, be honest with yourself. Yes. Like, have you seen any of these movies? Like, do you watch movies regularly? What are you talking? Like, what what are you getting in this conversation for? I feel like that's most how. people that go and see movies this is this is a shitty take but i feel like most people that go and see movies nowadays actually hate movies yeah i agree 100 percent. yeah no i agree okay yeah. cool i feel like i feel like no movie has the um has any breathing room to be accepted on either like its own terms or for being like maybe not perfect and uh i i think that's like really sad because people will watch like eight hours of a tv show that is like at best, at best, less than mediocre, yep. you know? It, like, obviously should be a two-hour movie, but it's like an eight-hour TV series. Yeah, you know? Like, so much padding and so many twists that don't make any sense. And, like, like even something that's pretty good, like Yellow Jackets. I'm I was like, just going to say Yellow Jackets. Oh, my God. There's way too oh much God. bullshit in Yellow Jackets. It's, like, it's, way too much. It's, like, five episodes longer than it needs to be. That would have been, like my movie of the summer if that was just like oh all God. of these like 90s like you know stars who were coming back and playing older and versions cut of together with the future versions of themselves and it's all leading up to something and then it's over it like that sounds so fantastic good i would have loved that um i'll still watch the second season whatever <laughs> I, I i love i love melanie and the third Linsky and, and the fourth and the fifth like, and you know I, I watched the first episode of uh, we crashed the other night, oh yeah, the, How was that? the uh, have you guys heard about this? No, 
I've heard about it. Yeah, you guys haven't even heard. Have about you guys? It? Have, no. you, have you guys? Have you? Have you guys heard about this thing? We no. crashed. Have Yo, you heard about this? Uh, what's hey, the, you guys. What uh, you guys uh, see the papers? We crashed. You guys hear about this? <laughs> uh, you guys, a lot of people talk about this. Um, it's like this new sh- Apple show that's about WeWork and the oh, founder yeah, and yeah, his yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. crazy girlfriend. It's yep. with Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway. Yep. And. Anne Hathaway, who we, was the girlfriend of a scammer in real life. In like, real life. So, so they typecast her. She she knows what yeah. she's doing. I think the first episode was an hour long, and we got 35 minutes into it, and we're like, when is this gonna end? This yeah. they they're padding this out. Like they're padding the first episode of this out. And it looks like shit too. Jared Leto's pretty fun, and I gotta say, he is as as psychotic as a human being as I think he probably is, and is probably um, depraved and horrible as he, I, I'm pretty sure is yep. as well. Last couple projects of his, I've been like, okay, yeah, I mean, Gucci, pretty, how, yeah, Gucci. I, I was like, I, I was like, this is he, if he's gonna do this for the rest of his career, I'm I'm game. I'm, with I'm you. on like like Nick Cage level stuff yeah. almost, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm with you. I mean, but great. he is a. But I'm also pretty confident he's a monster, and the world would be better rid of him. Yeah, yeah. He's I mean, for anybody sure I know who, yeah, yeah, anybody who's actually interacted with him like doesn't come away feeling good about having interacted with him. No, yeah. I, I only have like one like actual like in person by like three degrees of separation story uh, about him. I I have a a former roommate and friend who is related to a relatively famous, quite famous, uh, person in the fashion industry. And they attended the Oscars the year that Leto won for Dallas Buyers Club. And apparently he spent a sizable portion of the evening at the after party making sure that this person knew that he won the award and asking over and over again in like a a coked out, you know, kind of like fury if they saw him win and like heard his speech. Oh my It's just like no, but you know that I won, right? I yeah, won. I, did you won. know? Do you did you see my speech? Did you like, hear? Did you, did you hear, hear the part when I said thanks to my mom? Did you hear that part? <laughs> Chris, you were didn't you and I go to that Blade Runner screening that time? Yes. Yeah, where he was there. Do you, yeah. oh, do you remember? Oh, no. when, were you there when? Were you standing yeah, there when we, I said hi to him? Yeah, we were standing <laughs> next to each other when he came over and talked to you. Yeah, I I was freaked. I was so weird. I had interviewed him like a couple times before, and he's always weird. So like I got had to go to the screening because I would think I was interviewing him or someone from the movie. And like he so I'm like getting candy or something. Yes, you were filling your pockets with candy. Like <laughs> you're wearing like a beanie with a, a propeller on it. And you were I should not be in public, basically. <laughs> and I, he's like standing there and I'm like, oh hey man, it's like Ricky. I've interviewed you a couple times. Thanks for like having letting me come to the screening. And he was like, where are you from? And I was like, uh, and I told him like the, the outlet and he goes, okay, well, enjoy. <laughs> and I was like, what the f- what asshole? asshole? Like it, it wasn't like, it wasn't like a, I'm a maniac laugh. It was like a, you are smaller than me laugh. And I was just like, Oh, my, oh I didn't, I don't want to be here. Yeah, That's, that sucks. That sucks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> He's a bad Look, person. Buddy, we're all in the same 
like a basement of a hotel in Midtown. Like, you right. know, we're all we're all eating gummy worms out of the same bucket. Like, you also, know, just like, so is many this gummy the worms. first time in your life as a celebrity that anyone has tried to just like say hi to you? Like, fuck off. <laughs> I don't think he wanted like I think he wanted like a certain kind of hello yeah. and he was like, yeah. He wanted governance, um, Ricky, and you didn't yes, give it one, to exactly. him. Right. Which I, I kind of did, but in like a, hey, how are you sort of way. way. Not, yeah. And that's not not what he was looking for. No. Has everybody done uh, what we've grown no, out of? Neither of these cowards have done it, but if, <laughs> I'm not going to force them to do it. You're I mean, we've, been, we've been dancing around it. We've been avoiding the subject. Carly, you should go. I, my thing is related to both of your things, um, which is that I think broadly speaking, there has been... Uh, a kind of like disillusionment on the part of creatives and just people that make movies where the the trust in an audience to understand a thing or not need something like spoon fed to them and also just like be okay with as we've been saying like regular people having regular conversations in real places I think that we've grown out of and I think the other side of that coin is that like audiences have also grown out of that themselves like audiences I feel like like when I say I think a lot of people that watch movies now like hate movies like I think the the sort of like smoothing flattening smoothening whatever we want to call it uh this narrowing of the aperture of like what is acceptable media to consume on a on a broad scale has like rendered most audiences just like the I'm thinking of the the cartoon elephant from like old timey um old timey cartoons where the the elephant's like scared Dumbo of, scared of a mouse Dumbo? yeah like Dumbo but he's he's got other problems anyways it's a new girl <laughs> reference um where he's scared of the I mouse I do agree or he's scared of the mouse I think there's just like a lot mouse. of I got it clutching. the elephant that's the elephant that's scared of the mouse yeah, yeah right like audiences oh, go to movies could... and they're just like I need to see stuff that like only reflects back to me exactly what I think and say and feel and like anything else is not acceptable for me I think also that the movie has to a movie these days has to really feel like it's doing something Right. Like even yeah. if it's doing something abnormal, like using gems as a reference again, it is very clearly doing something, right? Like, and it is driving. Like, like, like why am I watching a movie? You know, like it yeah. has to be like it has to justify its existence in this way. Yes. Yes. You know. Yes. And I think a TV show kind of does that by just just by the nature of the aesthetic, which is constantly pumping out information in a writerly way, right? It's not. It's that's the medium, whereas if you try to approach a movie the way you could in the nineties, which is like, just settle in, just settle in. You're going to have a good time. It's like, it just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. What, what do you mean? What do you mean? Settle in? Who are these people? What is this? What do they want? Why do I care? Where, what, they, where what, are they going? What's the conflict? What does he want? What does he want? What are they building to? Yes. Yeah, what yeah. are the snakes? There's like, there's like the need for like narrative heft. But I also think just like, if we're talking like tactically, like, the ways in which people's lives have changed and all of the different options we have available to us of like ways to pass our time, spending time to watch a movie like in the nineties in 1992, that was one of like four things you could do. Right. And like now it's like, 
we movies do feel like they have to justify themselves and like really like hey over here guys look like we're doing stuff uh okay spend like maybe 90 minutes with me or like three and a half hours and right right right, and that's like you know it's because there's we have there's been a proliferation of of choice and also look look in my day there's 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 the radio, there's the newspaper, <laughs> and there's the movies, all and right? Like, like, that's right. That's and it. like outside. And then there's like outside. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, playing stickball with your best friends from the block, obviously. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. just hitting a hoop with and a even... snake if you don't have enough friends to, to get a <laughs> yeah. game together. Yeah. Even then, even then when I was a kid and there were only those things, people didn't like movies that much. <laughs> they were just a thing to, they what were just like do? one of the things to do and to talk about, but they didn't really like them. And they really enjoyed having a bad opinion about them because it was something that they could feel better than like, Oh, this fucking piece of shit movie star really fucked up this movie. (laughs) I hope they don't make any money. They're not, they're not better than me. They're not, you know, you see Bruce Willis. He's not better than me. You see that piece of shit color at night. That guy's stupid. Hudson Hawk. Hudson, Hudson Hawk. Hawk. Oh my God. You see that piece doing? of garbage. Uh, garbage. Uh, I'm I always do. happy for Richard E. Grant to get a paycheck, but that movie, you know. <laughs> and this, So this goes into, I think, the thing that uh, I would say is my answer to this question of like, what have we grown past or, or whatever in, in our current culture? Um, it, it echoes pretty much everything you guys have already said, which is like, I mean, I, I hate saying like movies like this don't get made anymore, right? It just feels really cliche. Not but true, but I, I saw a, someone online, some comedian, uh, like say this more adeptly than I've ever been able to articulate. Uh, and like in uh, you know, Dave Chappelle, was it? Dave Chappelle? It was Dave Chappelle. <laughs> it was it was Dave Chappelle. He said, uh, "I'm Team Turf," and then he said this about movies. Um, no, I'm kidding. No. I'm kidding. It wasn't him. Um, it was a cooler guy. It was a significantly cooler guy. Talking about, he's watching Twist. David Tell, no, not David Sorry, Tell. Oh, Joe Rogan. oh my god, I haven't Joe thought Rogan? about David oh Tell in decades. Yeah, I was watching an old episode of Insomniac, and this came up. Uh, so he he kind of said, you know, he was watching Twister and said, like, movies of this era play out like movies that like there's still like uh, an intent behind them that has some sort of like artistic backbone, and use the phrase that like movies today and that like things that are produced today are just a form of like transient content. And I think that that term is awesome to describe yeah. it. Uh, you know, this this movie doesn't have the same even sort of like capitalist ambitions as like a movie made today does, right? It, like it, it's a movie that's being made for the sake of being a movie. It wants to turn a profit. It wants to get people paid. But there is still like an art form in there in some capacity, you know? And like movie audiences and and sort of like the the winnowing down of of who can create and, and, you know, what corporations are, you know, owning what studios, like it, it wasn't quite as like narrow as it, as it is now. And it just feels like this movie feels like it is first and foremost trying to be a movie, you know, like we, we already mentioned licorice pizza, but think about like what a revelation it is to have a movie like licorice pizza that feels like, like a hangout movie being made in 2021 this movie for a long portion of its running time kind of feels like a hangout movie. Like there's stakes, oh, I totally scene agree, to scene, yeah. but it's, it's a hangout movie, right? Uh, it's just like two guys being dudes, like winning some money, losing some money, being mean to their girlfriends, whatever. But like, it, it just feels so novel because it, it didn't have any, like you said, any intent to be about anything beyond just 
being a form of entertainment and and having some fun. Right. Let's make a good movie and see how it goes. Yep. Yeah. Let's make the best movie we can and see how it goes. And make a bunch of money doing that, you know? Yeah. Now, like, hey, we had a meeting with the marketing department, and it doesn't sound like this role here uh, that, you know, only appears like three times is something that we can really sell. (laughs) So maybe, you know, we're going to have to pass on this one. Sorry. You know? It's it's also like a film that while if we're going back to the thing that I was mentioning before we got started on its sort of like consumerist trappings, like it's, it's a film that I think is, um, was important and impactful on like markets, um, and particularly for, for Nike and for basketball and just a lot of other, a lot of other consumer markets. But I don't think that that is like what the movie was setting out to do. Whereas like, I feel like so many films now are cultural products to sell a thing and it's not even overt product placement, right? It's like, um, it's more sort of like the propagandizing uh, that feels like it's wrapped in consumerism now. Whereas like this movie felt like it just had the breathing room to be like culturally relevant and impactful and like influence trends and, and that that just kind of happened. Not that it was architected that way. We're going to get to see whether or not, uh, a modern version of this would be more architected yeah. with, uh, pretty soon. I think Jack Harlow is like leading a, a remake of this movie. Yeah, it's happening right now, right? Yeah. I, no. I just, yeah, it is. Who's yeah. Jack Harlow? Exactly. I, I have no idea either, actually. <laughs> uh, some white guy. Some white guy. But like, it, it, it's going to be from the outset. Like, you're just going to be bombarded with like Nike and fucking just all sorts of like kind of I feel like it's going to be like this new version of the Fresh Prince that is out. I feel like it's going to be like that. Yep. A thousand percent. I, I will, I'll actually defend that. (laughs) Not because I've, not because I've seen it. (laughs) But But? because it is such, (laughs) because it is such a colossally bad idea. It has to be the work of like one person pushing it through. I cannot imagine like one powerful person pushing it through because I cannot imagine. Okay, I'll tell you who it is. I'll tell you who it is. It's what the person these people are Will talking Smith. about, Jack Harlow, who is must just have his agent has made this happen. Yeah, he has. He's somebody who with like he has five million Instagram followers, and he's a, a white guy. He's on the cover of Rolling Stone. Uh, he's a musician, I guess. Is that right? Is that? Sure. That's yeah, what I, I understand so. him sure. to be too. I have I have no idea. It's one of I these bet, people that just I like pops bet up. you a million dollars his whoever age whatever agency he has pushing him are the people that put this movie together. Yeah. I bet it's gonna be him and Lil Nas X because it looks like he does a bunch of stuff with Lil Nas X. Oh boy. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Right. I'd watch that. I'd watch that. If Lil Nas X gets to be as gay in the movie as he is in his in in real life, that could be kind of fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think yeah. his I think his whole persona is pretty fun. Yeah. I agree. I'm into it. It's going to suck, but I'm, I'm into seeing how they do that, you know? It's, yeah, I mean, that's not to say, like, that this obvious pandering towards, like, remakes and reduxes and all this stuff it can't make something that's, like, at least an interesting cultural artifact of our moment. I think, like, 
there are things that are fascinating that I would engage with purely on that level. But this movie, like, as I said, like being a thing that influenced like buying trends and like things that people wore and said and like, you know, the proliferation of your mama so fat jokes, like yeah, yeah. that is like a thing that just happened. It wasn't designed that way to do those things. Ricky, I think that's it, brother. I think we fucking did it, man. I, I, I just am very conscious it. that I have to edit this episode. So, like, it's already been fucking two hours. I know. So everybody should shut lot, the hell up. Yeah. Everybody shut with. up. <laughs> well, we'll just end by saying, guys, thank you so much for coming on, uh, watching this, and having, I think, one of the best conversations we've had about a movie on the podcast. Thank you. Fantastic yeah. conversation. I will just say here out in public, Open invitation to come on Hit Factory anytime. That was the point. Well, that was the point of this whole thing. <laughs> you could you could have saved us an hour and forty five minutes, Carly, if you just said that at the top. Look, we could have just I needed forty eight minutes. Jesus. <laughs> um, how can where can where can everybody find you guys? Uh, yeah. Do you want me to give yours as well? Oh, I don't care. It All right. I don't say anything important. I just uh, talk about Mariah Carey. Yeah, you can. Uh, That's you can, very important. It's extremely important, actually. You yeah. are right. <laughs> uh, you can both listen to and hear Hit Factory wherever you stream podcasts. Uh, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Um, Carly also tweets separately at Deep Impact Crier. Um, because she cries at the movie Deep Impact very often. I do. I thought it was it. because you believe John Cryer should have starred in Deep Impact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go with that one next time. Yeah, that'll be that'll be the new myth, the new story behind it. Uh, we also have a Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/HitFactoryPod, where we do bonus episodes biweekly uh, for our our patrons there. And I think that's really it. That's where you can find us. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Awesome.